one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello movie truthers, welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Laura Venning. And I'm Ayanna Murray. On the show this week, the Guardians of the Galaxy return for Volume 3. A trip to South Korea becomes one of self-discovery in Return to Seoul. And on Film Club, there are childhood adventures afoot in Sun and Brambo. All coming up in Truth in Movies, a little bite-sized podcast. Very excited to have you both here with me on this very special episode of Childhood Trauma, Truth and Movies style. (laughs) 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 Laura, what have you been up to? I think we last had you on for the absolutely horrific Jurassic Park film. So you are our Chris Pratt person, it seems. Yes. Well, actually, I think it was around the same time as uh, Thor Love and Thunder. So I really have, you know, thanks, Little White Lies Gang. You've really subjected me to a a lot of Chris Pratt because he is actually quite well at least in the first 10 minutes of Thought Love and Thunder there's a lot of Chris Pratt so here we go again but yes other than keeping up with the adventures and misadventures of of Chris Pratt I've been good thank you so much just yeah in between Marvel's Marvel screenings doing odd bits and bobs here and there for Little White Lies and other places Uh, yeah I just introduced a screening of Jane Campion's The Portrait of a Lady at the BFI which was very exciting and a lovely experience so um so yeah that's what I've been up to <laughs> yeah, nice gig if you can get it um Ayana I almost don't want to ask you what you've been up to because I just will get so incredibly jealous of like these amazing profiles that you get to write and who and have long lunches with all these fabulous people but I, I will grin and bear it what have you been up to <laughs> Well, yeah, I've been good. Um, I've just been preparing for Cannes. But the last big thing I did was on theme, I I profiled Will Poulter for Guardians. And um, we we actually went to a cooking class. So we had like two hours of cooking and learning about Eritrean food. And it was at this really amazing... I really recommend it. It's at this cooking school in Farringdon, I think. It's called My Grateful. And they basically train migrants and refugees to teach others how to cook their cuisines and um it was really it was a really amazing experience I've never been to a cooking class before so that was a new thing for me and then just to be there with Will Poulter was really surreal um but it was a lot of fun and I think the nice thing about it was that we actually didn't get to talk about the movie that much but which is probably the best for me and we just ended up talking about food the entire time which I'm never going to object to that so that was a lot of fun and I um I wrote that for the cut so that's out right now it sounds like a dream it sounds like the literal stuff of dreams you you wake up from from a lovely dream that you're in a cooking class with Will Bolton <laughs> and you're like oh I wish I got to do that for real literally literally sounds like a dream <laughs> a good dream a really good dream yeah the best kind of dream <laughs> oh, and is he his hench in real life as he appears to be on screen I mean I remember him as this like scrawny little thing and like seeing him now he's they've, they've Hollywooded him oh he's like buff like he's also really tall which I did not realize like he's well over six foot I'm five one so he like towered over me it was mad I was very surprised by yeah because you just have like very different expectations of what he's like when you see his film so it was a definitely a surreal thing to meet him in person but he's lovely oh, well again i'm gonna try not to throw my laptop at <laughs> <in general. laughs> yeah, me too yeah we've kind of got um 
childhood trauma as a theme, I suppose, coming up this week, a kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of a thread going through it all. I mean, we've just come off so many horror films on the subject. The Babadook has got a lot to pay for in, in that respect. I mean, do you do you think it's kind of overused as a plot device at the moment? I think it feels kind of cheap now to it's like a it's like an easy shortcut into making you cry. I guess we'll talk about this more when, when we're talking about Guardians, but I definitely felt that watching Guardians 3. And um, I think like, you know, talking about generational trauma has its place. But when you're kind of berated with it so often, you really, you really see the like inner workings of them trying to make you cry. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I suppose after everything everywhere all at once did so well, with those themes, it's probably not going to slow anytime soon. Oh God, yeah, so true. (laughs) Yeah, I I just, I can't help but think of, you know, that meme of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis on the, was it the Halloween Kills or the Halloween Ends press tour? One of them, where, you know, that super cut of her just going trauma, trauma, trauma Mm. over and over and over again. (laughs) It it just plays on my head, in my head and on a loop. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the sort of, the, the, the dead parent, the dead or absent parent is such a common narrative I think particularly in children's films or big actiony films you know if it's not a dead parent it's a dead wife and it's a shortcut to pathos like I get it but equally I'm kind of on the same page as you guys and I've slightly had enough of it for a while I I yeah when was the last time there was a there was a uh, particularly a children's film with uh, all the parents all the parents alive and kicking and around and, and, and I can't think of one but I guess orphans always have to have adventures and it's been that way since like the Victorian times so maybe it's all just old storytelling rules you know continuing to be in play yeah I mean now I'm trying to think of a children's film without one I mean what where's Ariel's mother now that you mentioned oh great point and I bet they'll answer that in the new live action remake because it seems like Disney is determined to explain all the answers to all these questions that have you know been the subject of BuzzFeed articles for the last you know more than a decade of like where yeah where's Ariel's mum I'm sure we'll have an answer soon As you were talking about that, I was thinking about what the last like children's film I watched was, and it was the Super Mario Brothers movie. And even in that, Princess Peach like accidentally runs away from her parents, and she's like basically an orphan for her whole life. So even then, wow, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere, everywhere, all at once. But yes, let's get into the tale of a traumatized little raccoon. Is he a raccoon? No, he says he's not a raccoon, but he is. He is a raccoon. Definitely, definitely. In denial about that, I think. (laughs) It's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. The Guardians of the Galaxy are adjusting to life on nowhere when parts of Rocket's past resurface. In order to protect him, Peter Quill must lead the Guardians on a dangerous mission that could lead the team into dissolving if they fail. So Laura, how... In terms of the Chris Pratt films that we have made you seem, I think this is probably the best of the bunch. What did you make of it? Definitely, definitely. You know, this is this is Chris Pratt doing what he's good at, which is being a sort of slightly goofy, irreverent, slightly dim, lovable hero. You know, that's his shtick and it always has been, you know. It's essentially his transformation from Andy and Parks and Recreation, you know, his sort of first breakout role to this character, Peter Quill. It, 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 it's very clear why they chose him. It's really what he's good at. Whereas his Jurassic World, I mean, his Jurassic World character is is nothing is is a blank slate like I really I don't even know what that character's called and I've seen all of them so he's back he's back doing what he does best and 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 this film was really good fun and it reminded me you know I'm not really a Marvel person but it just reminded me of like oh yeah these these have got something a bit more to them I think there's more imagination on display there's more there's more kind of I think just because it's not as serious but 
And yet the problem with Thor Love and Thunder was also that it was very jokey and very kind of overtly, we're not taking this seriously, this is all a bit silly. But I think James Gunn actually manages to thread the needle with this one just about, even though like Thor Love and Thunder, it still has this quite sort of whiplash between very intense, dark stuff that I was thinking would give children nightmares, practically giving me nightmares, you know, just about what they can get away with with a 12A versus broad, very silly, colourful, colourful stuff. But yeah, whereas I think Taika Waititi's Thor Love and Thunder really was a bit of a, a bit of a mess and just a kind of a CGI sludge. For for some reason, this this one, just more zingy, slightly funnier gags, although James, I think James Gunn's not half as funny as he thinks he is. But still, it made me chuckle and it really, it really did zip along at uh, an enjoyable pace, at least for the first two thirds. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Thor Love and Thunder felt contemptuous to me. Like, it felt like this is like a man who is like brazenly not giving one crap about the movie that he's making. So true, yeah. Ayana, how does this kind of fit into you in terms of uh, MCU rankings? You think this is kind of top tier, mid tier, or have we just been given such crumbs for so long that this seems good? Yeah, I've taken a wee bit of a sabbatical from <laughs> from moral films just because every time I go in I know it's not going to be my cup of tea so why waste the two and a half hours of my life watching them so it's been a while since I've seen one and I I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this most of the way through I think I'm the same as Laura where two thirds in it kind of lost me the thing about this that struck me as like being really different from other Marvel films was like how quietly or maybe not quietly but just how sadistic this film felt in the way that the way it establishes Rocket's backstory. And I guess that's not a new thing for the people who've read the comic books, but as someone who doesn't know anything about the lore or anything like that, I was genuinely quite shaken on the verge of tears. Maybe I'm just really sensitive around animals, but seeing all that was, it was kind of traumatizing watching that and I I think if I was like a 12 year old I'd be so shaken watching that but in the same way it also felt really refreshing that a film like this would go as dark as it did and I kind of wish it kept up with that because once it gets to kind of the third act there's a there's an army of anonymous you know, aliens attacking a spaceship and you have to go and defeat them all and there's also this villain who has like some kind of motive. It was kind of funny how James Gunn tries to like subvert the Marvel formula in a way. There's like a scene where the villain whose name escapes me now, that's how unmemorable he is, but he's trying to like establish why he's doing all of this and um, Peter Quill's like, I don't need to hear this same shtick about how you're trying to destroy the universe for the good or something. And then he goes on to still do it anyway. It's like, I think it's funny how much James Gunn is trying to fight against this formula that obviously the upper lords of Marvel kind of have to force on you, but he has to succumb to it anyway. So yeah, it's weird, the kind of push and pull of, of this film. Yeah, it does seem that, I mean, previously, they it used to be the trend that uh, Marvel films were like decent films with terrible villains. And then they became recently terrible films with decent villains. Because even, you know, Thor's Love and Thunder's, who was it? I'm trying to think who it was. Oh, it was Christian even, Bale looking yeah. really dry and, you know, he had some serious dry skin issues. But yeah, I thought he was, he was, he was having some fun. <laughs> But yeah, there was something kind of refreshing returning to decent film rubbish villains again with this one. I mean, I couldn't really gun to my head tell you what the bare bones of the plot was or anybody really wanted to accomplish towards the end. It, you know, it did become a nonsense. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and, you know, we're talking about Will Poulter this week and I'm assuming it's a comics thing, but I was like, I really have no idea who or what this gold person is. Although I did enjoy him. Uh, it, it, he and Elizabeth Debicki is, I'm not sure whether she's his literal mother or like sort of, he was grown in a little little tube or like by magic. I really have no idea, but they were they were good fun together. Absolutely no idea what any of that was really about. What I think I mainly took from it was I thought the production design was really strong. I loved the like practical sets, just like the colour scheme of it all. So many references to 2001, which I just rewatched recently. So I really enjoyed picking those out from the kind of spacesuit design 
to there's an homage to the shot of the kind of 360 round the ceiling, kind of upside down, famous shot, and some kind of, Ayanna and I were talking about the desert landscape, which pops up very briefly at the end, which is, it's so the 2001, uh, you know, famous opening sequence. So um, it, it's got some, yeah, like I said, fun and imagination behind it, which I feel has been lacking somewhat recently in the Marvel, um, the Marvel oeuvre, 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 never know how to say that word. And they're losing him to DC, so... Uh... That doesn't bode well in terms of future imagination. But we've got to talk about the soundtrack. The past two, I think, kind of started on like kind of upbeat things. And this was, was it Radiohead's Creep? Yes. It was. It was indeed. Yes. I think an acoustic version, which was um, a fun, a f- ironically, a fun way to kick things off, I thought. I was like, okay, here's a signal that we're doing something a little different this time. And, and I was into it. It was nice when the um, the title card came up and it was the most solemn <laughs> way to kind of introduce this film. It did signal like a change in direction, which I, I really liked. I like the, the soundtrack is really good. I mean, that's always been a strong point of the Guardian films for me. I'm trying to remember what was what was in it now. Dog Days Are Over, that's always a that's always a good one. I like that. It's nice the the progression the kind of decades that this film has taken music wise and uh yeah, lots of good good needle drops. Um and in terms of the actual struggles of Little Rocket himself, I mean <laughs> I found it kind of strangely moving and I always thought it was strange that they bothered to kind of get Vin Diesel to be Groot given that he says so little and that you'd bother to get Bradley Cooper to be Rocket because he doesn't really sound that much like Bradley Cooper to me but I thought his voice performance was actually like very impressive. Yeah me too me too um you know he was off the deep end watch as he dives in etc etc just a little star is born gag there you're welcome I couldn't help but think of a star is born watching I was like oh he's got that slightly gravelly tone on I it's uh, although of course the last thing I don't know if you guys saw this but the last thing I saw him in was his little cameo in Dungeons of Dragons which was a delightful little guest appearance so much fun as again as like a diminutive uh Bill side character um yeah no I I thought all that really worked some like really fantastically gnarly design on some uh on a group of fellow uh animal experiments that he that he befriends um very reminiscent of Sid in Toy Stories room of weird toy um sort of frankenstein monsters stitched together there's a white rabbit with some horrible mechanical spider legs which is it, it, it's got to be an homage to the baby with the spider legs in uh in toy story surely it's all i could think about yeah all i could think about last night was that poor little otter for some reason the otter really haunted my dreams Oh God, yeah. There's a scene between the <laughs> the otter and Rocket. It kind of reminded me of like Deathly Hallows Part Two when Harry Potter is about to die and he's in the like liminal white space, and um, it looks exactly like that. And me and Laura saw the film together. We were kind of laughing at it. I don't, I don't know. Like I, I think it's funny going back to kind of how sad and horrifying this film is. It does feel a little emotionally manipulative in that way and I'm not above like I think like all film is emotionally emotional manipulation but something about this felt really transparent in the way that there was these like very precise moments where like they really want you to start crying at this moment there's like violence swelling or a character comes back and you can you can just like see the mechanics going on of what they want you to feel at this point there was a tweet I was thinking about the entire time I was watching this film I think it was from Kyle Buchanan at the New York Times his review of this film was um a little life but raccoon oh my god <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> and I, hey that that's got some truth to it again it, it does it's like so especially his backstory it feels so true and I think like that kind of also harkens back to the, the criticisms of a little life about how manipulative that book feels so but it's hard to cry when there's a, a, a walrus on wheels waving at you you know, it's so, it, they're they're really asking quite a lot of you. I I couldn't help like the walrus is waving, the walrus is waving, and it has wheels for legs. I can't. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm just very grateful to you both, kind of schlepping out for the two and a half hours of this, particularly given that like there was 
there wasn't a huge amount of reason to be optimistic about uh, what we were going to see. I, I had to sit through the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. Um, so, you know, quality is not in any way guaranteed when coming into a James Gunn film or a Chris Pratt one. I mean, DC is clearly in an absolute mess. They've got The Flash coming out shortly. Shazam was a disaster and they're kind of gutting the entire thing. But do you kind of have hopes for what he might be able to turn around there? Because he's essentially becoming the Kevin Feige, but he's going to be in charge of the whole shebang. I mean, I don't really have any high expectations. I mean, I think in terms of Marvel directors, it's nice that James Gunn, his films feel like they have a personality, which is one of the things that makes Guardians feel one of the top tier franchises in the MCU. So hopefully he can bring some of that to DC. But then I worry about those films kind of being the monolithic, like hard to distinguish, you know, thing that's happened with MCU and their quip snarkiness. So I don't know, but I think, you know, DC does need a little new life in in it. So hopefully he does some good. If only because we're going to send Laura off to a load of these things. Every DC film. Will <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, exactly. Please, for my sake, turn this ship around. And I was just thinking about how funny it is to remember where James Gunn came from. These like little low budget, like really splattery films. And I first came across him because there was this, this is such a digression. I'm so sorry. There was this reality show that was, I once discovered on late night TV as a teenager, which was uh, a talent show trying to find the next star of a, one of the Saw sequels. God knows which one and he was one of the judges on it and that was the first time I'd ever seen him before and uh, that uh, that that was how I was introduced to, to him and his world and I think Michael Rooker was was on it as a kind of uh, I don't know acting coach or something so it's quite bizarre to see the uh, to see his uh, trajectory considering yeah he comes from a much more much more splattery background I background, every if you will. episode of that show did you oh my twice. god <laughs> yeah I, I loved his film Slither back in the day um, I'm actually kind of hesitant to revisit it because I suspect it's not very good. But at the time, as a kind of teen, I thought it was wonderful. But I remember that I am a huge Michael Rooker fan. Henry oh, Portrait really? of a Seal Killer. Um, and yes, I absolutely adore him. And there is a scene in that James Gunn reality TV show where he brings out Michael Rooker for this kind of cast of young women who all want to be like the new scream queen. And none of them recognize him. And I was furious i was like how dare you because <laughs> for one thing he'd been in all of james gunn's films like how little research have these people done you know i'm glad none of them made it actually beyond <laughs> show some respect on michael rooker's name yes i will not stand for it otherwise and actually i suppose the good thing about if james gunn is in dc michael rooker can come back because he's he died in the last one of these and that made me very sad although he died also in the first two minutes of james gunn's suicide squad which david jenkins editor of Little White Lies. He was in the screening there and he'd been very much advertised as being a big star in it. Dies in the first two minutes and I immediately got a text and he was like, I'm so sorry, you must be so upset <laughs> how little Rooker there is in this. Yes, and, and, he w- and he was correct. We should get some scores on this. Laura, Chris Pratt, Queen. <laughs> mm, sorry. I I'm hate this title. <laughs> God, actually, I will mention, have you seen what Chris Pratt has been doing today? No. No. He's been tweeting and Instagramming pictures of his, like, messed up toe and then superimposing it on celebrities' faces and then kind of Instagram storying them. So, (laughs) irredeemable, really. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. So with that in mind, Laura. Yeah, right. (laughs) uh, So, I would say in anticipation probably a two because i didn't have a very good time last time i did one of these but equally the guardians are have gen in general been more fun so i was like yeah a two maybe we'll see i would say overall a three in enjoyment because i would say it was a four for about the first two thirds and then it just became really too heavy on the hordes of aliens as yana said and explosions and in retrospect again probably a three it's really good fun if you like this kind of stuff but um it's uh oh god it's just way too long really it's just way too long yeah Ayana, what about you yeah i'd say in anticipation of a two 
I'm not a Marvel fan at all, so I had very low expectations for this coming in. But then also, Guardians is one of the better ones, so I had a little bit of hope. Enjoyment, I'd say a free. I mean, for, for what it's worth, every minute of this film is entertaining, and I was absorbed throughout, despite how long it was. So I did have a good time watching it. And then... I'd give it a two in retrospect just because thinking about it more overnight it's kind of fallen apart for me especially in the way about how manipulative the whole thing feels so yeah two free two I think I'm probably at threes across the board really it's a difficult thing because you kind of as part of you like this is what's going to be in the multiplex they might as well be decent but then also I do kind of as an institution kind of want it to fail so we get, <laughs> like a little a little bit more variety and a lot less Morbius so yeah a, a conflicted three next up return to soul A 25-year-old French woman returns to Korea, the country she was born in, before being adopted by a French couple for the very first time. She decides to track down her biological parents, but her journey takes a surprising turn. First up, though, David Jenkins talked to David Chu about his film. Hey, great director. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. And uh, I'm really a big fan of the film. Yeah, thank you. And... I think I saw your first film in, in when it was in Rotterdam. But yeah, I, def- I saw that one as well. And oh, okay. was, was a big f- was was excited for this one when it was announced. So, cool. but yeah. Uh, so the first question I have is: as a Cambodian native, but uh, living in and brought up in France, I, actually, I was as well as born in France. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're born in France yeah, as well. Okay. My right. parents who moved from Cambodia to France uh, in '73. Right. As Bontanian. So Cambodian heritage, I guess. Exactly. So yeah. sorry. Um, I guess I guess that it, it seems such a it seems to me like a, a an intriguing decision for you to then make a film in Korea and for sure. I I'd love to know like how did you land on Korea as yeah. the kind of the the place that would be the the center of the drama in this film? Yeah. Um, first, I would say I never had the idea, and I know I will never do the story of a young uh, French guy with Cambodian descent going back to Cambodia or going to Cambodia for the first time and and facing the country. I I know instinctively that I will not do that film, maybe because I feel it's too close to myself. I, I don't know how to say English. What's, but what's, the, what's bad about that? I don't know. It's <laughs> just intuition or maybe just like shyness, out of shyness that you just feel that, no, you're not going to make that film, which is so obviously you. That's the first thing I have to say. The second one is... Um, the reason why I decided for Korea was just out of the things coming to me, which is that uh, first trip I made in Korea in 2011, where I was showing my first film, Golden Slumbers in Pusan Film Festival. And then a friend of mine who inspired after the character of Freddy called, called me and said, we used to study together in France. She had the same story of Freddy, which is born in Korea, adopted at the age of one something in, in France and grew up there. And then she called me and said, I heard you're going to Korea. I'm going to show you. I gonna. I just took one week holiday and I'm going to go with you and show you my country. Uh, time she used to live there already for two years. First trip for the, her, well, I mean, that trip of two years was when, when, when she was 25, exactly like Freddy in the film, but exactly as me going to Cambodia when I was 25 in 2009 and her was 2008. And anyway, I went with, she went with me. And after two days being at the festival, she told me, I just texted my father, who she used to meet twice on her previous two years trip, but it didn't go well. That's what she said. And she didn't plan to meet him on the trip with me. And she said, after two days, I just texted him. I'm going to meet him tomorrow. Do you want to come with me? So that was that trip and that experience that was absolutely unexpected that um, stayed in my mind and brought me the idea years later to make a film out of it. So I would say that the story in Korea and everything like that just came from the real experience of my friend. And how does your but, friend feel about it? How, what, was the, what was the process of when you were going to write this, this story that is based on, 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 on this experience from someone else? What, so, how, how, did they play, how did they play a part in it? So funnily enough, um, she was based in London uh, when I wanted to talk to her for the first time of this idea, which I kept for myself, although we experienced that together. It was not my time at that time. And I was, uh, I was 28 first time in, in Korea, so I was not, like, after experiencing this heavy moment for her, saying that, hey, wait, I want to make a film. No, it was not the moment to do that, but I just kept the idea. So that was in 2017, which is six years later that I came to London, and I had the idea of, I'm going to see what she feels. And if she said, no way you're making a film out of my life, then I, I will turn to another idea. That was the moment I was looking for an idea. And so... How did you approach it with her? Was it a surprise to her? 
It was a surprise for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think I emailed something. I suggested something by email, but so maybe she kind of understood that by email. But of course, it was like a surprise that she wouldn't expect that. So, but she was immediately enthusiastic. And a few weeks later, she sent me notes and, and some kind of dates and details of her life in Korea and her experience there. She reacted very, very nicely and she was very enthusiastic with it and, and wanted to participate and give ideas and stuff. And, and did she end up helping you write the film at all? Or is it once, you, once you've kind of agreed on that, were you kind of moving away and then like you were going off to make the film yourself? Yeah, it was, it was a bit like that. I think we... We spent like maybe in the span of maybe, yeah, I don't remember exactly, but two or three months. Mm-hmm. I would ask her a lot of questions by email, like specific things, slash to understand the picture of it. I think at that time I was not like fully 100% sure that I would make a film out of it. I wanted to see if there was enough material yeah. that I could fit into it and feel the story. And after we finished that, um, that I, I got the picture and I was like, okay, I can do something. Then I stopped asking her question and I think I wrote the script for something like three years. We were in touch, but we didn't talk about the film precisely. It was yeah. more about the friend. Yeah, she was my she's my friend, so we hang out when we, I went to Paris and stuff like that. And I took time to share with her the script. I think I was a bit apprehensive of how you know, like it's your life, right? And how mm-hmm. I mean, it's not everything is her life, but of course, it's strongly based on her life. So how would you react? Would you be disappointed by reading it? So. I wanted to be sure that I was solid with the material before sharing it with her. So I shared with her some kind of nearly to final script. And she was very, very um, positive, which uh, kind of calmed down my anxiety. Okay. Oh, that must have been good. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that, yeah, that's how we work together. It, it strikes me that like when you, ha- you have this film about you know, a woman who in, in, a, in a country where she is unable to speak the language and there is a sort yeah. of commu- communication barrier and... I wondered, was that a bit of like, it was the experience of you making the film in Korea a little bit like that? No, I, I, I mean, I, I see the, the, the metaphor, but I think I put a lot of myself uh, going to Cambodia in the first time when I was 25, obviously, as well. Which yeah. means the first experience of living abroad, the first experience of being in Asia for me, who is an Asian who grew up in a non-Asian country and was not so much in touch with other Asian friends and stuff. So a lot of this thing with the languages, with the barrier of the cultural barrier, of course, I found them back in my experience in Korea, but somehow the main source of inspiration personally was more my experience living in Cambodia when I was 25, first time there, having to unfold the contradiction that I was feeling into myself of going to a country where I'm supposed to come from but not knowing anything about that country and having to deal with that kind of confidential feeling, having to deal with the way that people will see me and like identify me differently than what I will identify or what I have learned to identify myself and all these kind of things and the feeling of confusion as well, um, this kind of mix and contradictory feeling of familiarity and still a very big distance but I think it's what Freddie feels when she's there. A lot of excitation with the idea of going to encounter that territory and that country and that culture. But in the same time, that feeling of really not belonging and never feeling that she will belong. All these kind of feelings were very, very personal, actually. And so going back to your first question about like why I decided to make in Korea and as opposed to not making in Cambodia. I think sometimes, I mean, at least for me, it's the process of choosing a topic and jumping into a, a project of film sometimes follows some kind of naive instinct, I would say. And, mm-hmm. and that carries a part of naivety, at least in my, in my side, in the sense of, I think, and that's much, I think, the journey of Freddy. There is a kind of unconsciousness and innocence into jumping into something and following maybe something as a form of calling that you can't exactly define and understand the true nature of. And by just jumping into the fire, which Freddie does what she says, that she was supposed to go to Tokyo and then out of an impulsion because there was a typhoon, she goes to Korea and looks like it was a random choice, but we can really question whether Mm -hmm. it was a real random choice or not. But somehow she... The important thing is that she believes it's random and that's because she believes it's not that important that she can do it. And then maybe through the years, she kind of unfolds the true meaning and resonance and consequences of her action. Somehow I relate a lot to that. So there was this calling about that story in Korea and maybe inside I could really feel feeling attracted by something that was kind of my story. But if I knew it, maybe I would not have done it. That's what I mean. Yeah. And what about the decision? I know, obviously, you have this inspiration of your friend, but yeah. was it always a, a, a choice that you that you were going to be, that the story was going to be about a female, a female protagonist? Because, Fre- obviously, Freddie is a, a name that is kind of gender, gender neutral yeah. in a way. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah, which which is a choice, yeah. But um, no, I, I never. I, I mean, I, I I always. Again, the first inspiration was my friend. So it came not only with the story, but with her personality and the way she deals with things, including with male characters, mm-hmm. with 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 male uh, with guys. And so I was interested to explore that. So somehow I was feeling if I change the sex, the gender of the of the character, that would be a different, not a different story, but a different thing. When I was casting though, and when I felt kind of difficulties to find the right character, I started asking myself questions like, what if I change? What what if I could find like a great French Korean actor who could play Freddy? Would I change that? Because I, I met some, and but then quickly I said no. The story has to be for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's what I feel. Although yes, the name is um, non, but just playing with her kind of non-feminine personality. Let's say, mm-hmm. yeah. There is a there is a cinephile reference to that. I don't know. If, and, and so so far nobody has. Oh gosh. Found I, it actually. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and dig, yeah, dig please, out. Yeah, dig yeah. Who's the Freddy? Yeah. The only Freddy I can think of is Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's not the one. <laughs> okay, not Freddy Krueger. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's 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 an intri- that's very intriguing. I'm just I've yeah. just had a brainwave. Yeah, yeah. Is Freddy from Millennium Mambo? No. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. No. It's ah. it's from the Master. Oh. It's, Phoenix character is Freddy, oh. and oh. I think it's oh Freddy Quell. Yes. Yeah, I think somehow. I mean, I, I watch the master very regularly. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a master fan and masterpiece. And yeah, the instability of Joachim Phoenix's character in that film, the anger he has, the way of just not fitting where everybody won't try to frame him, just remind me of the character. Mm. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah it's a good Freddy. Yeah. Okay. So thank cool. you so much for your time. Yeah, I, hope, David, I hope you can have some... Uh... So I had a very different sort of uh, revisiting of childhood trauma in this one. What did you make of Return to Soul? Yeah, I love this film. I first saw it at Cannes almost a year ago now. So I've been thinking about it this whole time. And the funny thing is, is that it barely registered at Cannes. I feel like it really flew under the radar. And the only reason I saw it was because I saw the title and I read the plot description. And I was like, this sounds like my cup of tea because I love Asian diaspora <laughs> films. They're, they're, they're my everything to me. So I was in it for that. I saw it. I loved it. And it's been really fun just seeing the conversation and how much the film has taken off. It's felt really gratifying to see the love around it. And um, saying how much I love Asian diaspora films, it's funny because it feels like they're a lot of the same these days, if that makes sense, like Minari or something like that, where there's this wistful longing to it. I don't know how to explain it, but there's a there's a vibe to them. This is a bit of a digression, but there's this TikTok account I follow where it recommends Asian cinema. And the the clip that it uses every single time is like someone driving in a car or a bus and their their hand is out the window waving. And I feel like that encapsulates like the Asian the Asian or the Asian diaspora film. And it felt really refreshing how much Return to Soul kind of goes against that. Just thinking about this now about when Freddie's in the in the car, there's nothing of that vibe to it. It feels like she's sort of trapped in in this car with her with her birth father. Going back to it, um, I don't know. It's it felt really refreshing in just that you really don't know what's going on with this character, whether she wants to embrace her Korean heritage or if she wants to fight against it. It just felt really refreshing for me to see that, knowing that, you know, coming from a sort of Asian diasporic background myself, that these stories don't have to be so monolithic. And um, it, yeah, I, I don't know. It just felt really refreshing and I really appreciate that. I will let someone else speak. <laughs> I mean, this central character of Freddie is such an interesting one. And I mean, it's her, her debut performance, which just seems absolutely extraordinary. I mean, do, how did you kind of read her as a character, Laura? I thought she was just incredible. That performance is, like, astonishing. From Park Jimin, I believe her name is. I couldn't help but compare this slightly. And, you know, again, you don't want to don't want to flatten these stories, but I, I, I contrasted it, I suppose is what I mean, with Past Lives, which I recently saw, which I just happened to have seen them both in the space of a month. And, again, that's about um, this time about a, a Korean woman having left Korea to live in Canada at a very young age. But but having that slightly more wistful, longing uh, relationship with Korea. And and again, like Ayana was just saying, this is very different. This has got a much more complex, a much darker edge to it. Freddie is so unpredictable and quite self-destructive. And just she feels so human and so real. And 
you know, I love past lives, but it's doing a very different thing. This is so, this is just such rich character work. I just couldn't take my eyes off her. There's, there's an incredible scene where she just kind of breaks into this dance and like she's really kind of searching for something and fighting for something. And I believe that the director was influenced by the dance at the end of Botravai, which which does ring true. Yeah, as this kind of big burst of energy and frustration and anger and kind of longing and all these these intertwining things. And we see her, you know, the film jumps in time several times, which was totally unexpected expected to me I think with these kinds of films you generally expect to see the character go on this journey to find their literal journey to to find their birth family or find their origin and it's all resolved fairly neatly within the space of the literal time it would realistically take for them to find them but this this radically jumps time and we see Freddie just trying absolutely everything on to try and find out who she is and some in such surprising and fascinating iterations of herself I I can't wait to watch this again actually and it has such like a haunting atmosphere um but yet there's also a lot of pathos and and love and emotion there as well I think it's just amazing it's interesting even you spoke earlier about how like trauma kind of can be like a shorthand and kind of you know like something very simple to to get into with a character and in this case it's just so complex it's so rich there there's there are no shortcuts taken with the journey that she goes on absolutely i think it kind of reminds you or reminded me anyway that you know to to say sort of bluntly therapy is never done it just keeps going you're never just gonna you know obviously the the hollywood narrative formula has to have issues resolved and wrapped up neatly to make the story structure work. But it's just not like that in real life. These things just never leave you and are never resolved. And, I, you know, we can't really talk about the ending, but the ending is so beautiful um, and really kind of, you, you kind of, you, you really just, you're under its spell completely and really, um, and really just, yeah, with that lingering idea of these, these things just stay with you in ways that you can't always understand or articulate. Now, a year after you first saw it, Ayana, I mean, what were the things that did stay with you before you returned to it again for the podcast? Just how deeply rich the character feels. And it's interesting how she's kind of frustrating in that, like, she she doesn't really know what she wants. But then it's also deeply relatable that she obviously doesn't know what she wants. She comes to Korea just on a whim, suddenly deciding that she wants to, to visit her quote-unquote home country and um it's just really fascinating to see you know how much she kind of wants this relationship with her family but also doesn't because once she meets them she's like I don't know if I actually want to be a part of this I feel more French than than Korean is this actually what I want that feels deeply relatable but I think what feels so fresh is just how viscerally angry it kind of feels how how freddie feels i think going back to kind of this wistfulness of the diaspora film there's always this like sadness to it this deep sadness to to what you're seeing and it just feels really rewarding for someone to be like actually i'm not sad about this i'm actually really angry that i've been put in this position that i don't know where i belong and i don't know who i am and that just feels really gratifying to see that you're allowed to be angry about this i i also love just how yeah how unpredictable this film is going back to the time jumps that laura said it feels like you know you're meeting a a stranger every time that it it jumps forward every couple of years it's really yeah it's it just feels like you're meeting someone new and that just feels so real as well that you know of course this person is going to be the same you know in between the seven years or whatever that this time jump so yeah yeah it stayed with me for for a long time this film and um for good reason well yeah um i'm i'm going to kind of feel very jealous that uh, in a year from now we'll you'll also we'll be talking about things that you guys saw at can that i'm coming to for the first time but yeah well I'll, I'll i'll try and keep that and my will pull to resentment to myself <laughs> but yeah ayana do you want to go ahead with the scores yeah, I'd say anticipation of free. Um, I really didn't know anyone going to into this. No recognizable names for me, but just on first glance, it sounded really intriguing and very 
relatable for me so a three for that enjoyment a four yeah I just I just loved it I just loved everything about it it got me instantly and then in retrospect a five just because I've been yeah I've been thinking about it for a long time and it's just a film that really really stays with you so yeah three four five very fair uh Laura what about you I think I would also say three four five again because seeing it um initially I really didn't know anything about it and I think it wasn't the buzziest title out of Cannes there's actually a really good uh, Vox article um out today but I think it's Alyssa Wilkinson talking about how this film was really like the underseen best film of of 2022 23 so I didn't really have any expectations yeah enjoyment of four I just found it really absorbing fascinating unpredictable so beautifully shot as well just the craft of it is also stunning and yeah in retrospect to five it's really it, it really has lingered with me it's been a little while since I saw it but I can sort of capture the or, or sort of bring up the mood and the feel of it in my mind right now and and yeah again that ending is really a knockout so yeah a, a five in retrospect I think I think I'm probably at fours across the board some trusted people recommended this to me and you know I just I love Korean cinema and I love how kind of bold this was and how unpredictable Uh, it was. Maybe it will become a five in my mind eventually when I have a little bit more time to sit with it. But it's certainly one that I'm very keen to return to and to show lots of people that I care about. Next up, it's Film Club. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Son of Rambo. During a long English summer in the early 1980s, two schoolboys with differing backgrounds set out to make a film inspired by First Blood. So, Ayana, your dear friend Will Poulter. <laughs> this is his origin. I mean, I'm trying to think. So this is 2007, which was 16 years ago, if my rudimentary maths is correct. And so he would have been, what, 10? Yeah, I think so. I think he's the same age as me, so I think he's actually might be slightly older. I, I did I did look up partly out of like curiosity of of, uh, of of what Will Poulter was up to. So I think he would actually have been a bit maybe more like thirteen or fourteen, but he's he's, he's, he's just tiny. Little. He looks younger, doesn't he? Yeah, that's surprising. He seems really tiny to me. I yeah. mean, but just adorable. I mean, for you, I am a. Do you kind of see a star being born with your future dear friend, Will Poulter? Oh my gosh, he's amazing in this. I never, I'd never seen this film before. But the funny thing is, this really brought memories. I saw a clip of this film in uni in my first year film exam where we had to analyze a scene just on like first sight. And it was this film. Which, in retrospect, like, why did they pick this film? But anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, that was such a, a digression. But um, I thought he was... Which scene was it? I'm curious. I think I think they were filming. I think they were making the film. I think it was with, with all the stunts that Bill Milner, Milner does. But Will Poulter is amazing. And it it's really impressive how much... Um, he's just, like, so charismatic in this role for how young he is. I know there are great child actors out there. Will Poulter is obviously one of them, but he feels like a, 
an actor actor in this film if that makes sense and uh i i really love i loved his character that the ending of the film as well when um they show his film to a packed cinema crowd and he starts tearing up it really got me Aww, he's so lovely. he's so sweet i i loved his performance in this and i i really liked the rest of the film too it's really sweet it's a lovely film yeah i think it's a difficult thing to be kind of that charismatic but also kind of credibly someone that is not going to have a very easy time at school and is kind of being treated quite badly by his peers but he kind of strikes that balance yeah i think it's a fantastic performance and it's good writing because because i i actually really believed that that was a kid who would be incredibly naughty in class but also, you know, the naughty kids were always really charismatic. You know, that's always the way and have that kind of performative streak. So that character just made sense to me and felt very real and felt like a lot of, you know, a lot of boys and girls um, at my school. I just, yeah, it's it's really, it's really excellent writing elevated by a, like, just fantastic performance. Like, he really just lights up the screen. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I do kind of slightly grimace at when I hear that I've got to watch a coming-of-age story because I often find these kind of things very inconsequential. But this, this I was generally pretty moved by. I'm trying to think. Its depiction of the 1980s as well felt, like, incredibly accurate and, like, lived in it. It didn't seem like a, a kind of pastiche of the 80s. It really felt like we were there. But I did love the gag, which did feel like more of a pastiche of the 80s, that the sixth form common room, which the younger boys managed to get themselves into, is done up like a club. And you've got teenagers, you know, dancing, sniffing scented rubbers, um, all kinds of stuff. It's a That's a really good gag. And they all do a dance to, you know, I just can't get enough. And I felt like that was the only time it led into like the pure... 80s nostalgia but it was it was, it was a good gag so I allowed it <laughs> yeah but also in terms of you know we talked about how the Guardians of the Galaxy is so bloated gotta love that slim 95 minute runtime as well <laughs> Not, nothing excessive about this it's just it takes as much time as it needs to tell its story and doesn't over bloat itself it really breezes by I really it's just nice to see a short nice film for once also the nice thing about this film is that I don't know we're in a weird time right now where you kind of feel disheartened about the film industry I guess you know the WGA just uh, started their strike and um, it's just nice to see a film where it goes back to the bare bones of filmmaking I guess where you know you can't just go out into the woods with a film camera jump down from trees and into rivers and and make your fun little action film it goes back to kind of just the heart of what filmmaking is I guess that just felt really I don't know it it felt really um heartening to see that you just go out and make your movies and have fun doing it yeah it tapped into some pure nostalgia for me because I literally used to do that with my cousins and my sister on summer holidays we made some uh we made some masterpieces in, in in a very similar vein. So yeah, it really brought back those those lovely memories of, of uh, films that are on some little tiny tapes somewhere, God knows where. But yeah, got to dig those out. I mean, bringing up the WGA, um, I think this was 2007, which is also the last time that they had a strike. And I, I remember it pretty well. Television got so bad for such a long time mm. afterwards. Much solidarity with them at the moment. I hope they get everything that they deserve because, I mean, if there's anything that the, is generally lacking in like big cinema and television. It's good writing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought that the writing in this was just absolutely delightfully done. I mean, it's just that thing of they always sound like children and it's not too kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink at the adult audience who's with the jokes. There was another bit I liked in this where I guess this film had like French funding or something in this. So there's a whole storyline about how a French school comes to <laughs> comes to comes to stay with them. And there's this one French kid who all the girls have a fancy and um, there's like a funny scene where he just kisses them all. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. But then but then it goes to the end and you find out that this kid is actually like really unpopular in his school and kind of bullied and I think that goes back to just how great the writing is that like that turn felt really unexpected but not unearned in that there's a this little bit of pathos in it so I've, I thought the writing was great I thought it was, I thought it was really 
It's a really sweet film. I really enjoyed it. I have to jump in with a fun fact about this this French kid who all the girls at the English school become obsessed with. He also has a little gang of um, British groupies, boys, British boy groupies, who all obviously want to be like him and start styling their hair like him. And one of them is played by a kid who was at my school in the year below, and he is the grandson of Stanley Kubrick. So what? Wow. I didn't watch it again. You'll recognize one of the kids. He does have a couple of lines at the end, uh, towards the end when the um, when they're filming the evil scarecrow. But you know, look out for the kid that looks exactly like Stanley Kubrick because God, he looks like him. <laughs> so yeah, that that's the uh, that's the cinematic lineage of, of Son of Rambo, grandson of Kubrick, Son of Rambo. There you go. You went to school with Stanley Kubrick's nepal grandchild. <laughs> I, I I did. I really did. And, you know, I stupid 11-year-old me did not really know who Kubrick was. But, um, but yeah, he looks exactly like him. It's quite weird. What's he up to now? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's in a band. I think he does music. I think he didn't, the acting thing didn't really, um, didn't really go. But I remember him at school plays, in school plays, you know, he was, he was pretty good. But uh, yeah, I think he's in like a heavy metal band these days. So um, if you're listening, Sam, um, I hope you're doing well. Um, yeah, all the best wishes to you. Well, we can't really top that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to mention it, I'm so sorry. No, not at all. That's uh, fascinating. I guess it's someone like Stanley Kubrick, they seem like such a mythical figure that it's almost just like, oh, no, and I suppose there will be offspring. <laughs> <laughs> but we should move on to uh, one last thing where you guys give some non-movie recommendations. So, Laura, very excited to find out what you're going to be recommending. I'm basically actually taking up all of these recommendations as well. So this is, you are essentially telling me what I'm doing this weekend. Fantastic. No, this is a great service. (laughs) So what is it that you're going to recommend? I'm going to recommend the last book I read, which I absolutely adored and I've been recommending to everyone I know practically. Um, It's a newly published book this year. It's called Arrangements in Blue by Amy Key. And it is sort of a memoir, sort of a series of essays. We talk about her experience with not finding romantic love. And she's in her mid-40s and she hasn't had a, a boyfriend's really a serious partner since she was in her early 20s. And it takes the Joni Mitchell album Blue as inspiration because it's very important to her. So each chapter is sort of centred around the theme of, of the song, of, of each song in order on the album. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think it's so interesting to think about and read about different forms of family, different forms of love, what can be fulfilling, what can be frustrating, what can what we know we hope to be true. And yet we also kind of fight against at the same time, like that longing for romantic love that we know shouldn't define us. But equally, it's also okay to long for it. There's complex emotions and there's no clear answers, but it's just it's just a wonderful book. I would really strongly recommend it. That sounds incredible. I mean, almost that sort of disappointment, I suppose, is quite difficult to acknowledge or kind of even you know talk about in any way says I suppose there's some shame tied up in like why didn't you find this I mean I was single for for a very very long time so this might um pick at some some old wounds it absolutely did for me as a perpetual singleton until sort of two years ago so um so yeah I I it definitely spoke to me but I think would speak to anyone really it's um it's it's just so beautiful and so moving Ayanna what about you what are you going to recommend that's a tough act to follow because sorry I'm, <laughs> I'm already I have to say like um, I'm Amazoning it the second <laughs> no I will go to an independent bookshop yes <laughs> the second this is over I mean yeah I don't think my recommendation is going to be nearly as textured and deep as as Laura's but video games are my big de-stressor for um when work gets a bit too much so I love spending hours and hours away on my on my switch and um the new Legend of Zelda game Tears of the Kingdom is out next week or in two weeks I've been preparing for that so I've been playing Skyward Sword and um the thing is is that I'm really terrible at Zelda games I can't play any of them without having a tutorial open telling me step by step exactly what I have to do saying that it's still really fun to play just because the world of the of the game feels so big you live in this sort of like sky colony like up in the clouds and then one day you have to come to earth to save Zelda basically and um and that's just really it's really fun how big the world feels now, especially coming off of the last Zelda game, which is like one of the biggest open world games ever. It's just been really fun. 
you know, very challenging for me, apparently scary, which I wasn't expecting. I haven't gotten to the scary bits yet, but I've heard that it's going to be quite scary. And I, I'm really bad at horror game stuff. So this is going to be terrible for me. But um, so far, I've been really enjoying it. And I'm really excited for the, the next Zelda game. So Skyward Sword, that's what I've been playing. It is amazing how like long Zelda has endured for. Like it just seemed to have just like I, I can't I can't remember a time pre Zelda. <laughs> like, yeah, what are the ones that's just maintained quality for like decades and decades? Yeah, there, there's so many of them. I'm I'm like really behind on my Zelda like catalog. I've only played. Um, I mean, the one I'm doing right now, the last Zelda game, and then Majora's Mask, which is like one of the top tier ones. That everyone says is like one of the pinnacle of Zelda games along with Ocarina Time and um, Skyward Sword is a really fun one to play because apparently supposedly there are a lot of similarities between this one and the next game so I'm really excited to see how these games link together. That sounds absolutely brilliant and I always like with Zelda that I think of Robin Williams because he loved them so much that's why his daughter is called Zelda Williams. Yeah. I, th- I think Robin Williams would have loved the next one. Sadie doesn't get to see it. Well, we've managed to, you know, land on another banner. <laughs> <laughs> How did we do that? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Trauma again. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, we'll be reviewing The Eight Mountains and talking to its star, Luca Marinelli, plus looking at the dystopia for the elderly in Plan 75 and an equally grim fate awaits them in Film Club with 1976's Logan's Run. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, you can leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Laura Benning and Ayanna Murray. Podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.